Welcome to a new episode of the Open Source System Podcast. In this podcast, we talk about open source news and open source projects in any programming language. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and soon on Google Play Podcasts. Uh, today, everybody's traveling, but we have Alex Sexton joining us for uh, the rotating chairs seat. All of the rotating chairs. Yes, all the rotating chairs were free, so Alex took all of them. Cool. So we've got a lot of a lot of projects to talk about today. Uh, the first one on the list we have is the Hook.io, the open source microservice hosting platform. How, what do you feel about? What do you think about microservices? Do you like them? Uh, yeah, I mean, microservices are are good and uh, can be very useful. I I tend to think that people turn things into microservices too soon. Um, but that also, I also tend to turn things into microservices too soon. Yeah. So th this this project caught my eye. Somebody somebody mentioned in the comment or something. They're like hook I hook.io, and uh, it's made by uh, it's on yeah. GitHub.com/slash big company that slash hook.io. Yeah, it's old. It's uh, it's like four years old or something like that. I think. Yeah, I never I never heard about it. Have you have you seen it before? Have you used it? Yeah, I think we might have talked about it on Yayquery. That's impossible. I've not used it. Uh, I did talk to like uh, some of the Nojitsu guys way back in the day about it. This is kind of out out of that crew a little bit, Eric. Right. Yeah. So if you if you go to hook.io, uh, you'll get a really simple simple page for you to sign in or even just try out and deploy a service right from there. And by deploy service, uh, what I mean is you just select uh, the language you want, and they support JavaScript, CoffeeScript. Perl, PHP, Python, all sorts of stuff. And uh, if you if you write JavaScript, you can just write um, a Hello World app and uh, click deploy. And yeah, it will run. And will once you create an account, you will be able to just send a link to somebody, and they will access your microservice. So I'm wondering what are the sort of there are some of the real use cases beyond the Hello World um, application. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like, I mean, they have some things on there, almost a precursor to what came out of maybe like uh, Parse and what was the other one that Facebook bought one and maybe Heroku bought one or something like that. But the like, or Auth uh, does does author uh, authentication like this now to where you, you can kind of build a static site and then connect to all these different little things. Uh, I think it's of of good like you could do like authorization or logging or uh analytics like all back through this section or you know run email lists or, or different things which is cool yeah uh but I mean you kind of have to all set it up separately and then um there there are upsides and downsides to that yeah I like the uh the pipe streaming streaming requests where you give it a Give it a give it an API endpoint and do whatever filter the API result and then just uh, output the result on your own on your own URL. Right, the kind of like a a third party middleware. Exactly. So it saves you time from you know deploying an EC2 instance or a DigitalOcean was a droplet and all, all sorts of stuff. And uh, in this case, you just write a simple script. You want to get something running really quickly. Um, right. If you wanted to take an API that 
uh, didn't support uh, like use in the browser for cores reasons or something like that. You could just like simply add cores headers, I assume, uh, to to an API that doesn't support cores, and then boom, you have cores. Yeah. So if you and if you are looking at the advanced use cases, you can either pay them to uh, to get uh, more requests. Uh, there's some limitations requests, and uh, the, the more you pay them, the I guess you they get rid of the restrictions on the uh, on the API. But uh, you can also self-host the whole thing, I assume. And uh, it, it is open source. Yeah, and have the whole team use it for you know maybe prototyping uh, or something to use in hackathons and things like that. Yeah, seems well suited for that. Cool. So yeah, hook.io. We'll have it in the show notes in the uh, the podcast pod, podcast show notes. It's got only three hundred fifty stars on GitHub, even though it's been around for as you say four years. Free note channel if you want to check that out, and plenty of documentation to. Uh, to get you uh, set up, set up your own uh, self-hosted hook.io. What what's uh, what's the next item on the list, Alex? NeoVim. Whoa. NeoVim. Yeah, I'm a NeoVim user. Do you know that? I I can't believe it, but we're we're lucky. I, I was uh, I'm not a NeoVim user, so it's one of us. Fifty percent of these podcast hosts use NeoVim. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge a huge amount. So uh, for people who don't know what NeoVim is, it's it's more or less uh, kind of a, 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 it's not a rewrite, it's kind of like a port almost of a lot of the parts of Vim. I guess it's a rewrite, it's kind of like sits in the middle there. The goal is to kind of change uh, Vim over to a modern architecture and like have modern language instead of writing in uh, like weird scripting languages you can like write in python to to script it and stuff and like it, it has async io and a bunch of like uh nice stuff so so the new release um i think has a lot of stuff that isn't going to be immediately notice noticeable by people who use it but like new like plugin architecture stuff um uh it like compliance with different configurations and emulators and uh like APIs that are external. So I would imagine for most people who want to use NeoVim, and I can explain why you might want to do that in a second, but it's not actually going to matter that there's a new release, but NeoVim is a cool project in that like the other one kind of languished and there's kind of only one person that knew how to write anything in it. And this is a nifty, fairly like active project to to update Vim into the uh, the current era of applications the uh i use it because it has better uh like better color support um so like the theme that i use uh for vim is very difficult to get supported out of um like like out of just regular terminal like if you're in your terminal if you're in mac vim you're probably going to have like correct color support anyways but with neovim you don't have to necessarily uh like hack the color support in your terminal. Right, yeah. So you mentioned there was a single developer on, on, on Vim, I assume. But in this case, this NeoVim project already has uh, almost 200 contributors, 198, um, and 16,000 stars. So I, I guess people really, really like it. Um, well, you mentioned that this particular release, uh, I noticed that it just hit versions 0 0.10 11 days ago. and. Uh, 
Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's a milestone or yeah, I mean, I guess I, I've been using it for months, and I think other people have for a long time as well. Uh, so I think there's probably like it seems like there is some set of things that they wanted to rewrite uh, before they called it, you know, zero point one point oh. But I think for the most part, it's been like usable for non-crazy things for a very long time. So it, it, it very much feels like it'll be kind of like Node where it stays so low for so long and then all of a sudden it'll pop up like 10 versions. And uh, what is Node on now? Five? Is yes. that later in the show? <laughs> for anyone who wants a cool color scheme, my color scheme is Groovebox, G-R-U-V-B-O-X. Um, and that kind of requires NeoVim in order to, to, to work nicely. There are workarounds otherwise, but... Groovebox is a very cool color scheme. I can post a screenshot of that if anyone cares. Certainly. We can try to put it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, check that out. One thing I noticed that they do is they have these RFCs um, for uh, some features. Um, and people vote them up and comment on them. And if you go to the NeoVim readme, uh, you will see there's an RFC badge. And there's like 83 proposals, I assume, to right. add certain features or Part of them is like pull request, but uh, um, which is uh, kind of interesting to see. Definitely. Cool. Uh, so yeah, NeoVim on GitHub, and uh, the repo is NeoVim. Try yeah. it out, and I'll probably give it a try. Uh, given uh, it seems like there's uh, they're encouraging contributions, they are closing up issues, and they're uh, you know I'm happy to see more people contribute to the editor that they use every day. Yeah. The uh you can run it as a separate editor. So if you if you don't if you're too scared to make a switch, you can run it as just nvim. By default, nvim is how you would call it and you have an nvim.rc and all that kind of stuff. But if you want, you can kind of just uh symlink your nvimrc and then symlink the uh the runtime of vim back over to nvim and then anything that you know would uh, I, I wouldn't use a symlink actually for the the, the executable, but either way, uh, you can kind of trick your computer into saying Vim is now mVim, and then uh, and anything that would use Vim before now uses uh, NeoVim. Cool. Yeah. So this project's been around for how long? A year or so? Yes. Well, probably a little over a year, but yeah, mm -hmm. nothing crazy. Yeah, but but they do have almost two thousand pull requests closed already, and uh, yeah. a thousand issues closed. So uh, seems like a really well maintained open source project. Mm -hmm. Next up, probably the most complicated project uh, of the that we have on the list is TensorFlow, and uh, this is by Google. Uh, it's on GitHub slash TensorFlow TensorFlow. Um, and this is the open source library, software library for numerical computation using data flow graphs. And uh, trying to explain this thing, I, uh, it's part of the, the whole machine learning thing. Have you ever done any of that, Alex? Uh, I mean, I've helped train systems that have already been set up, but I never, uh, I mean, I guess I did in, in school, I did some genetic algorithms and some s simulated annealing, but I don't think it was anything. That's Same. So yeah, that's why I was hoping with this library um, that you know you can start maybe I'll find a good usage for it in some way. Uh, what I found, uh, somebody already posted some documentation how to run this on AWS on AWS's GPUs, which is certainly helpful. Mm -hmm. I I follow um, uh, his name is Kyle. 
um afer is is what he goes by more popularly but uh he he does the call me maybe posts about databases but he was recently talking about how easy it was to install tensor i believe on his twitter i could be thinking thinking of someone else entirely <laughs> uh ryan doll also I, I he was posting on facebook about how uh he's gonna throw away all of his other uh machine learning stuff and that it you know it the scripting language of his last of the last popular tools were all bad and and now he's excited for tensor so that seems like it's getting good reception even if i don't know anything about it yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think Google uses it uh, in some of their new stuff, and I think in Google Photos uh, to predict certain things in there. Also, the new inbox feature where it will write up your responses for you, right. uh, things like that. Uh, so certainly check that out. Uh, in terms of open source, uh, they already have 10,000 stars, even though they just open sourced it uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, some of the stuff they do there, you can't just send a pull request. You have to go through the sort of the Google way of sending a pull request through googlesource.com. And uh, yeah, a lot of people seem to be excited. Uh, there's an easy way to get it installed on uh, Ubuntu and OS X. Uh, so there's plenty of explore. There's a huge white paper to read. And uh, yeah, I think uh, this could be sort of if you, if you want to get into machine learning and uh, heavy computation, uh, this is the library to use. Yeah. It'd be it's nifty that like since it's open source, you could also kind of open source like trained systems and kind of connect them all together and say like, hey, I have a system that's really well trained for finding spam or well trained for finding this, and you could almost like use Hook.io to then like you know run sets of data through different sets of trained um, data set. I don't know. There's a lot of potential things of both open sourcing the data and open sourcing the the library that you use so so there's a common interface cool. yeah i have not seen any of the open source trained libraries yet actually. yeah i mean it's very new but uh, i mm -hmm. assume that this could like i don't know i guess the old ones could have uh, encouraged that as well but it feels like if the community kind of uh rallies around a single uh at least external facing api for dealing with this stuff you could potentially set those types of systems up. Yeah, that sounds excellent. Yeah, hopefully in uh, some of the later episodes, we'll talk about uh, somebody that open sourced uh, some kind of a trained system. Alex, what's the next thing on our list? <laughs> the next thing on our list, Vlad, is open face. It's face recognition with deep neural networks. Oh, snap. Oh, we snap. just talked about a bit of uh, machine learning, and now we have this face recognition thing. Yeah. Written fifty percent in Lua, there's thirty six percent Python, Python, and uh, there's a bit of JavaScript in there with some HTML. Something tells me that's documentation, but <laughs> well, actually, they have a nice, uh, yeah, nice documentation, and I think they might have had a demo, a couple of demos in there. Um, yeah, so this, in this case, uh, do you think they have a library that they train on faces? Yeah, I mean that seems to be uh, what the what the system is here. The, a deep neural network is a specific word that, that means something different than just a neural network. Uh, I don't know all the details, but like it's definitely the hottest, coolest, niftiest thing that all the cool kids are talking about these days is 
training a deep neural network to to do things. Uh, and there have been a lot of breakthroughs in deep neural nets uh, in the last few years, and a lot of really smart people working on that problem. And so, face recognition being as difficult as it is, is like a, a pretty uh, a very applicable like job to to throw at uh, deep neural nets. Um, and so, this seems to be one. I, I believe like it is trained uh like pre-trained to like be able to recognize faces you don't necessarily have to train it yourself yeah that sounds uh, pretty cool so that's another thing that we can put on hook.io uh right a service that will uh, you you know send it a a buffer of an image and it will find uh recognize a face on there uh just as soon as hook.io supports lua right i think hook.io already supported lua oh yeah so Hook.io supports Lua as an experimental language and All also right. supports Python and Python 3. So yeah, maybe, uh, Could, maybe, 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 maybe. Open face hook.io is, uh, is the future. Yeah. I like the, I like the name open face, but I, I really wish they would have made the low, like, I guess they don't really have a logo. So this is still possible. So if the open face people are listening, like I want to, I want like a grilled cheese with a tomato on it or something, you know, open face sandwich is the logo. Yeah, you could you could definitely probably propose it in one of the issues that the project needs a logo. Yeah, it needs and a logo. And it needs to be an open face sandwich with a fa like they need to make a face out of like the tomatoes and bacon. Definitely. Right, a smiley face, two tomatoes, slice of bacon. That's the open face. It's, it's perfect. I like your vision for this. Okay. Yes, it's excellent. yeah. Um, the, there's a bit of licensing going on. The the the, the source code and the trained models uh, are copyright of the uh, um, of somebody else, and it's under Apache 2.0 license. And uh, Facebook owns also. There's a it uses a Facebook uh, some Facebook uh, library in the background that is a BSD license. Mm -hmm. So plenty of licensing going on with this, but uh, no, it's not. It didn't stop them to open source this and put it on GitHub with almost three thousand stars. And uh, yeah, check that out if you want to. Uh, not not rely on some other API that you have to pay for. Um, you can just use this to recognize faces in your next project. Sounds good to me. Next up, we've got Stripe.com/open source. That's a cool website. You know, when you load it up, there's some fancy graphics. Yeah, the if you click on one of the cards, or if you're on your phone, if you just uh, kind of like move it around. That, yeah, and you can kind of move it around, and it's got like a kind of a 3D effect. And then you've got Conway's Game of Life going on in the background. It's certainly a pretty nice set of things. I just realized that. I used to have open source projects on this page that are not on here anymore. I guess my uh, my libraries got demoted. I think I've seen one of them. Oh yeah, there it is. Never mind. Maybe there's a uh, there's a a randomizer. There we go. Sorry, never mind. Cut that part out. Yeah, <laughs> no one can know. Uh, so yes, Tribe has a couple of open source projects going on on their GitHub.com/slash/Tribe uh, page. A um, couple of ones that we want to talk about was the uh, the Gaps uh, project, which is uh, easy management for your Google Group subscriptions. Um, yeah. Uh, so for context, for people who don't know, I work at Stripe, um, and I use Gaps. Uh, or really, Gaps is kind of nice because you don't have to use it very often. Um, 
Stripe does what, what they call transparent communication email. I don't know. They don't call it that, but that's what essentially it is. And uh, it is the idea is that pretty much any email that isn't you know personal or about someone's salary or something like that goes to uh, the person you're sending to or the people you're sending to as well as a list that anyone can join. And so if you want, you could join all of the, the lists for Google Groups. And then anytime I send a message about the front end, I can CC the front end group and then you'll see all the messages that have to do with the front end. And so you can kind of curate like the emails that are traveling around Stripe. And I think it used to work really well because there were, you know, four people uh, at the company and reading all the email was very helpful, but now there are 320 people. And so we need pretty like extreme, um, like uh, subscription models and easy ways of, of getting people in and out of d the different uh, Google groups. Uh, and so we have, we actually have two open source projects. GAFS is the one that you can kind of go to a website internally at Stripe and you can say like, I care about uh the food that they're serving at lunchtime, or I care about uh, front-end stuff, or I care about uh, investment opportunities or healthcare or something like that. And then they also have uh, another one that's on the list that uh, we haven't mentioned is, is actually by uh, Andres Fuchs. Uh, it's called Gmail Brita, uh, and I can add that to the show notes as well. But that's another very important combo uh, tool with uh, gaps because uh, you end up with so much email that you need to be able to manage your Gmail filters more easily. And so you can kind of like create um, like a little Ruby DSL for which things you want to label this or do these different things. Because the way that Gmail works is you can only like add filters. You can't edit them. Like even when you edit them, it deletes the old and creates a new one. And it's very hard to like do the logic of chaining all the different things together. And so this generates the filters for you. Um, so you, you don't have just a trillion emails all the time. Yeah, definitely. So, so you're using Google groups to uh, sort of improve communication, to sort of have a nice sort of history and uh, you know this is what happened in the front end and uh, you know some decisions were made or something or and um, and i can search my email for uh nuclear js and i can see all the times we've talked about nuclear js as context for whether i want to use it or not or do this or that uh, and that's that can be really nice right yeah yeah i never heard of that workflow so uh, does google groups allow you to create a bunch of private groups yeah or, so okay. we have just a bunch of private groups a lot of like you, like if you have a team, like my team has a, a group and if people want to send anything to our team or even anything to me that's like about stuff that I'm doing on behalf of our team. So if I'm working on project X and they know they want to talk to me, they would send it to me and the whole team um, and, and then just talk about project X. And then so everyone else could filter those types of emails out and I, I just get them, but they have the option of reading them. Got it. Yeah, so yeah, check it out. If you want to sort of have the same workflow uh, and you want to easily manage the list, uh, check out Gaps on the Stripes GitHub page. And Gmail Brita from Andreas Fuchs, Antifuchs on GitHub. Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes as well. Um, I think you had some other ones on here. You, you have Brushfire, which is a Stripe project. I never personally use Brushfire, but it's somewhat on topic today. It's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh, 
distributed distributed supervised learning of decision tree ensemble models in Scala Hel helps you uh, create decision trees in Scala. I, I don't know if I know enough to to talk about it more intelligently. Yeah, so it is. It mentions that it is based on the um, one of the Google's Planet uh, distribute to learning tree learning things. And I wonder if uh, this is like one of the Google's older projects until they use TensorFlow. It's not the only even machine learning thing that Stripe has, uh, even open source. I think we have also uh, like right next to it on the on that page we have Top Model, which is um, like binary classifier stuff. Um, yeah, Stripe does a lot of stuff with like fraud, um, and then the data team does a lot of um, um, work just pulling out information for us on like how we're doing in different areas. And a lot of that requires just training systems to to identify uh, like patterns. It works, they, they're very good at it. So I assume it's a good project. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like, yeah, this podcast, we already mentioned like three things that uh, have to do with deep learning and, uh, you know, neural networks, machine learning. So yeah, it's uh, plenty of projects to check out and uh, get your <laughs> machine learning journey going. G going back to simpler times with uh, jQuery payment, a simple JavaScript uh, credit card form plugin, you know, no machine learning going on there, but it does validate form inputs and the formats numbers, which is pretty pretty neat yeah it's a pretty popular project it's uh it's just like there are a lot of random things that you can do in order to help people uh type in payment information more easily and uh more advanced ways to validate those things and so jQuery payment works well if, if you don't want to have to think about that we, we've done quite a bit of work to make sure that everyone ever can check out on our checkout form so we figured we'd just share the love it's an old project. It's in CoffeeScript, Alex McCaw from back in the day, uh, but we, we still actively maintain it. So. Yeah. So if you're adding uh, a credit card form, check that out before you reinvent the wheel, I assume. And uh, <laughs> it's almost got 3,000 stars. Uh, I already started, so I won't contribute to that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 all in CoffeeScript, uh, easy documentation, and uh, yeah, um, jQuery.payment. You can also go to uh, stripe.com slash open source and we'll have that link in our show notes uh, to check some of the stuff uh, you might also like from Stripe's open source um, library. We have personal projects on there too. My message format JS is somewhere on the bottom if you, if you want some internationalization tooling. Definitely, quick, yeah. Quick plug. It's the only reason I came on today, Vlad, to plug my open source projects. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, go and star Alex's project because that's how you... Uh... So you sponsored sponsor those projects. <laughs> cool. Next up, uh, we're going back into uh, more JavaScript. And in this case, we have this uh, interesting project called React Native NW React Cal Calculator. Uh, and uh, it's not exactly like a library or, or framework or anything, but it's a good example of uh, uh, a mobile slash desktop slash website app uh, written in the same code. Uh, in this case, it uh, it is it is a it's an app that works on iOS and Android. It also works on desktop, and you can also deploy it as a website. And uh, um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes because the name for this is really long. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they really nailed it. The name. I have yeah, no yeah. I have no logo ideas for this one. 
<laughs> calculator app? No. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we've got, uh, so it's only been around for like 30 days or so. Uh, I don't think it's only four contributors, 90% JavaScript. But so yeah, if, you, if you're looking to build an app that, uh, that you're targeting to sort of publish on iOS, Android, and uh, pretty much everywhere, uh, you can uh, can try that out. Uh, it uses uh, you know ES6 syntax, um, React, React Native for the iOS and Android apps, and uh, uh, Node WebKit or NWJS. I'm not sure what the newer name is. Um, and yeah, all sorts of stuff. And uh, it's pretty interesting to see the combination of the uh, React and React Native together. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of this, but it feels like Facebook is very intentional not to uh, release React Native parts as like write once, deploy everywhere. I think it's a still a little bit of a pipe dream. There are, there are you know, different ways to to build apps for different platforms. And so I think it's still somewhat good that you can use a lot of the same code just with re regular React Native, but then still maybe change a few things up uh, per, you know, runtime. But uh, I don't know. It's certainly good for for some things. Yeah, definitely, uh, you know, check it out over the weekend or something to, uh, you know, try it out. Uh, if you're starting with React this, uh, and interested in React Native, I think uh, this is sort of one of the uh, sort of better projects to uh get started with instead of starting from like bare bones react native and trying to figure out all the view business and so on cool yeah next up we have uh ariel spelled with an e uh, in there so a e r i a l uh and it's the apple tv ariel screensaver for mac uh so i think there's the apple tv screensaver that everybody loves and this is just uh it for mac oh yeah yeah, okay. So I was wondering, so before I uh, I made up my own screensaver and it was a WebGL view and it was running my fans when my screensaver <laughs> was on. So like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was like, oh yes, computer, do more work while I'm away. Um so this I'm this sort of concerns me a bit, you know, playing these HD videos uh, while the screensaver is on. I don't know how Apple TV does it. I guess it uh doesn't uh doesn't need too much power. Uh, but yeah, if you want to play around with your OS X uh, screensavers, uh, this project, uh, we'll have it in our show notes, and you can uh, surprise your coworkers or family with the fancy-looking uh, screensavers. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder what the code looks like for this. I'd be interested uh, to see. Yeah, so the yeah, it's 100% Swift. And uh, this project, again, is, is, really, is really new, but it's already got 4,000 stars. And uh, you know, almost two hundred forks. People really want to fork it for some reason. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess you add your own videos, your own fly-throughs. You could definitely take some drone video and add your own. Oh yeah. So we'll have that project in our show notes. And uh, yeah, for uh, version one point one was released on October twenty-six. So pretty interesting. Next up is Spectron. Uh, which is a open source library for testing Electron apps. If you're not familiar with Electron, Electron is kind of like a a, a native wrapper around uh, like Node and and WebKit, right? Something oh like yeah, that. yeah. Um, so you so can... when you say WebKit, make sure it's uh, it's all uh, it's for Node and Blink. I assume there's uh... right. Yeah. Uh, the uh, it's, it's 
made for Adam, the Adam editor. So it used to be called Adam Shell, um, and then it became Electron. Uh, and then so if you want to test those applications, like they're pretty webby. They're not you know exactly web apps, but pretty webby. Um, and you can now use uh, the uh, WebDriver API in order to um, test those. So Chrome Driver is a, a wrapper around the the API to write WebDriver code, and so you can use lots of the libraries that already exist to um, to write WebDriver code. And I think there's like pretty much every testing library now has WebDriver plugins and such. Oh yeah, so yeah, so this this seems like really well maintained. I I hope it can do like basic unit tests uh, and also functional tests. Uh, it uses promises, or you can use Chaya's Promise, which is a lively, uh, which is a lovely library. Um, and uh, they use XVFB on Travis to run those tests, and uh, it also runs tests on Windows, which is which is great. Yeah, anecdotally, um, we we don't do. WebDriver stuff with it because uh, we didn't need to. But at Stripe, we used to do kind of like either SOS Labs or just like uh, booting up browsers. And uh, we would do it for our visual diffs. Uh, Vlad, I've talked to you about visual diffs before. But uh, we we wrote up something to uh, use Electron in order to render our pages um, without even reloading the page. We just kind of inject new HTML for each diff that we wanted to run. and uh, we we sped up the the visual diffing process by uh, like orders of magnitude. It took you know eleven seconds to get full screen, uh, you know, awesome uh, diffs and and all that kind of stuff. And so, Electron is certainly cool in the testing space. It kind of sits somewhere between a real web browser and something like highly scriptable. So I'm looking forward, and it's, it's really easy to install, which is the nice thing. Uh, so I'm looking forward to more people using Electron for more things. Right. So the benefit, and I know like Kyle, who's usually on this podcast, but is traveling right now, also uses it. Uh, so you're saying the benefit is speed and you don't have to worry about uh, sort of booting up and finding these browsers on your system. Right. There's like a lot that a browser does that you don't really need to just like take a picture of a web page. Um, and, and this does a good job of clearing out a lot of that stuff. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Cool, yeah, so that's Spectron, and uh, it's on GitHub, and will be in our show notes. Uh, show some love for this project. It's only got 45 stars. And uh, yeah, check it out, make some issues, because right now it has zero issues, and I feel like uh, it uh, you know, should be used more. You're sad for them. Feeling a bit sad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, next up we have, what is this? Photon. Photon is obviously related to electron i feel like you should have known that before <laughs> you you read the name because electrons and photons are quite related but uh this one's interesting because it comes from uh connor's which uh, uh connor sears is uh, a designer developer at um at, at github uh who makes adam the adam editor as well and so he uh he uh, also created Ratchet, I believe, um, which is a very, very popular uh, prototyping mobile app type thing. And so this feels maybe not directly related, but very much like in a similar vein of just like, it's like very bootstrappy to where you can kind of build up an application in a web app that looks very native uh, in, a, in a bootstrap kind of way. Um, 
but also it's just like very quick has javascript built in to automatically do it and it looks just like osx it's kind of great oh yeah yeah so if you if you ever been to the bootstrap uh, components page check out the uh, the photon components page if you scroll down you'll start seeing uh, all the native buttons uh, such as the sort of top ui buttons in uh, os10 uh, tabs such as uh, in your terminal and also the side uh, the sidebar in OS 10 with uh, like airplanes stuff like that um, there's some sort of custom UI elements like lists I had never seen those in uh, in OS 10 actually but uh, it's sort of like a mix of like the OS 10 theme and the bootstrap theme right um, yeah so this this looks pretty cool so if you go into I guess uh, a UI, UI framework similar to bootstrap for an electronic app this is sort of your starting point so yeah if you wanted to make a i guess it would work electron runs on windows right yeah so i guess you could make an osx app for windows uh which would maybe not be the best choice but just like old itunes and safari <laughs> yeah 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 um but yeah you could if you want to make a native app and you only know web technologies then uh, electron plus photon could be a very 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 good um, combo for you to kind of get going with that. Yeah, and I guess it's all about tricking the user that hey, this is not a web app. This is uh, you know your familiar fill. Right, which which is I feel like inappropriate on a web page, but extremely appropriate on uh, in a native app. Right, it's the correct, oh, yeah. it's the correct treatment. In most for sure. Cases. Mm -hmm. Cool. Next up, uh, we have one more project. Plaid. This is a Java app <laughs> uh, that uh, sort of showcases the best of the material design uh, guidelines. It integrates uh, Designer News, Dribble, and Product Hunt uh, to show you the latest stuff in, the, in material design. Um, it's got a really fancy README where it's, like, it showcases all the screenshots and uh, even has a GIF show, showing you how the app works. Right. It does a good job. I, I think a lot of the things that make uh, material design like the, Go the google uh, design like workflow really really nice are the little tiny bits of things that help you maintain context and so a lot of times it feels like it's just like an animation for no reason like you, you click on the little heart and uh it slowly animate or doesn't slow very quickly animates from being a heart into being a little modal uh, but it's actually like really nice that you're saying like, all right, this this thing that you're looking at now is actually a manifestation of clicking on this heart, and then when you go away from it, it goes back into the heart. So you never you never end up somewhere you didn't expect. You always have like a path that you followed, and I think it helps people like maintain context uh, very well. And I think it's a really good design pattern. I, I'm I'm a fan of it, and so this is really nifty. Yeah. So. Uh... I really like it as well, except uh, I haven't seen it executed well uh, by Google or by uh, other Google, developers. Google Music is is good, right? Um, I would not <laughs> cannot agree. Like when I see these uh, screenshots here, uh, things flying around, it looks pretty good in the GIF. But once you start using the app, it just feels to me it feels a bit slower. It's like, oh yeah, let me just drag this huge album art in your face. Uh, but uh, I think it's a good starting point. And uh, yeah, if you, definitely if you're interested in material design, check this this app. It's also available on the Google Play Store. 
Um, the license for it is uh, MIT. Oh, no, it's Apache license, and that's copyright Google 2015 on some certain probably names of things. Right. Um, there's a plenty of uh, there's a, a, many mature design followers. The the app itself almost has 3,000 stars, and uh, also available on Google Play as a beta uh, for beta testing. Wow, we went through a lot of projects in uh, really quickly. Uh, yeah, we'll give the people what they want. Fast open source news. So, okay, cool. So, Alex, where can people find you to ask uh, an open source question? Uh, I'm on Twitter as Slex Axton, S L E X A X T O N, which is kind of Alex Sexton, but with the first letter switched around and then you throw an E out somewhere in there. Uh, I'm also uh, alexsexton at gmail.com or alexsexton.com or it's easy to find me. Is it safe enough to uh, say your uh, say your email uh, over microphones yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think there are some spam deep, bots that listen deep, for your email. Deep learning is getting good enough to where they uh, they can do it, but uh, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Not yet. Well, my email is so prevalent in text all over the internet that probably uh, the last of my words. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Uh, okay, you can find me at vf.io, and uh, from that website, you can find me on GitHub, Twitter, and all the things. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Open Source System Podcast. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, with our regular hosts, hopefully, once they stop traveling. And uh, thanks again, to Alex, for uh, telling us about Stripe and about machine learning, which is a really complicated topic. Yeah, but one I was entirely unprepared to talk about. So, <laughs> but you did well. You did well. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to to Mike Taylor. I was really excited to be on a podcast with him, and so uh, thanks a lot for being on the podcast with me, Mike. There's always the next time. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks.